Hi, everyone. My name is Chris Harper. I'm the host of The Ledge. The Ledge is a podcast based around getting digital artists and me together on a host of topics. These interviews will be deeply personal and in-depth so that I get to know about their upbringing, education, background, and life experience. The goal here is to find out what makes an artist create art. Super happy to be here for this. (laughs) It's awesome. Well, I'm happy to have you on as my guest. I enjoyed so much meeting you in New York. And uh, if you're ready, I'll just go ahead and we can start, okay? Yeah, let's kick off. I'm good to go. And so it's always like, where do I start? Why don't you tell us where you live? You live in a pretty exotic place. Yeah. So at the moment, I'm based in Cape Town in South Africa. Um, I grew up in Somerset West, which is probably about 45 minutes to an hour's drive outside of the city. So I grew up in a relatively small town. Um, you know, my my parents were quite conservative. My mom's Afrikaans. Um, dad is English, comes from the farm. Um, so they very like humble, non-city sort of upbringing. What did your parents do when you were growing up, like work-wise? My mom was a grade two teacher and my dad is actually a veterinarian. So between, you know, mom being at school and dad being at the veterinary practice, um, it was a, quite a quite a rad upbringing, to be honest. I'm envisioning a veterinarian in, in South Africa. Is he working on like exotic animals or are we just working on like the house pets? He used to do like like big buck and big animals, but now he just does like normal domestic small little little buggers but it's it was a really really beautiful way to grow up you know as a kid to be able to run around and be surrounded by all these beautiful animals and you know having a dad who's exceptionally nurturing and caring and it you know he he always had a camera around his neck as far as I can remember you know he's always it's not his practice whatsoever but it was something that he found a lot of joy in um, and my mom, even though she's a teacher, she comes from a long family of, an, of artists. So she's always been a painter and a, and a sketcher. And um, she's always done that on the side. I think if it were up to her, she would have done that as a career. But, you know, growing up in the years that she was coming up, it, you know, having four artists in the family already, dad said, no, <laughs> you will become a teacher. Um, so I think, you know, she really, both of them really tried to push my creative side and give me the freedom to do what I want because perhaps they they didn't necessarily get that opportunity themselves, um, which I think is you know I, and I always say this that where I am now in my career and having had the freedom and sort of self security to follow my dreams and do what I want to do is testament to how they raised me and I I, I really don't say that lightly. Um, they really did give me the freedom to be able to have the confidence to express myself. That's amazing. It sounds like a pretty incredible childhood. I don't think anybody ever said that becoming an artist was going to be an easy way to make a living, though. No, <laughs> it definitely isn't. And I mean, you know, before Web3, even less so, you know, like traditionally, I, I went to, to varsity. I studied graphic design. So um, where, where did you go to school? Tell us about your education. Yeah, so I went to to school, primary school, high school, same place that I grew up in Somerset West. And then the moment I graduated high school, I think it was like I was moved into my apartment in Cape Town in the city, like before Christmas that same year. Like that's how quickly I wanted to get to the city. Like there was no break. It was like find an apartment and move in. Um, And then I went to AAA School of Advertising, which is a really, really great advertising college in South Africa. Um, and I did my, my degree in advertising and graphic design. Oh, that's, that's incredible. What was your career path after college? It was interesting. It was, you know, I, I've always been painting. So that's also like a a good starting point during high school. Um, if I wasn't playing sport, I would be behind my canvas painting traditionally in oils and mixed media. And I wanted to, I was toying with the idea, like, you you know, do I go into the graphic design side where, you know, my rational brain says it's creative and there's money to be made? Or do I go and risk being a struggling artist? And I thought, well, let me go the design route and I can always pick up a paintbrush again, right? So um, (laughs) design is is what I did for many, many years. And, you know, to circle back to, to what you mentioned previously, you know, in the traditional space as a normal artist, I never saw, not with my painting or with my photography, 
unless I was shooting commercially, which I did for quite a while, I didn't see my personal work being something that I could make a living off of. Um, you know, to, to go back to street photography, it's mm -hmm. something that is, it's so personal, right, to have a stranger's face hanging in your lounge, um, that it's not something that's necessarily for everyone. Um, and, you know, within South Africa, the galleries here, they're not really too focused on that. So if you look localized the way it was before Web3, you know, you were very reliant on the people that could walk into physical space. Um, so, you know, your, your footprint was so small. And now all of a sudden in the last year, that footprint's been erased and, and really the world is kind of our oyster, depending on how much time we want to put in. Um, it's just, I'm, I think I'm still wrapping my head around the fact that this is a possibility, not just for me, but for so many other artists out there. Things certainly have changed for artists in the last couple of years. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's been a roller coaster <laughs> for sure. <laughs> And, and do you and you work in and you work in South Africa now? If I if I'm not mistaken, I believe you told me when when we met in New York yeah. that you have an advertising agency now there. Yeah, so I run Studio Co, which I started about seven years ago. Um, we're a very small team uh, of women, and we we basically we focus on branding and repositioning of brands. So we've been doing that for a really long time. Um, in the traditional world, but we're all really vested in the in the crypto and NFT space too. So we've slowly started migrating and working with brands within Web3, not only in terms of, you know, visually what do they need to look like, but, you know, we, we dive into, you know, how marketing has changed from what we think works in the traditional world to how you need to approach it within a Web3 space where it's less about the frills and trying to pretend and more about telling your story and, and letting people you know, in on your journey, which really affects the way that, that we think traditionally about marketing. Um, so it's been really fascinating and it's been really interesting how the crypto space has not only inspired us, you know, as individual artists, but it also has created this new sort of like drive and motivation within the, the industry aspect of advertising and marketing, which I've, personally found to become quite stagnant in the traditional world. You know, it's much of the muchness where now I feel reinvigorated to kind of touch on that side of life much more so again, because there's just so much more opportunity. And I feel like the way we need to go about things need to be a lot more genuine um, and we need to be smarter. And it, it's just another way for me to push myself creatively, which I found to be a, a inviting challenge. And people are more savvy, you know, I think like buyers are more savvy and that's what I think people want, right? Like that genuineness that you're talking about. I, I kind of like that. Yeah. Energy. And also like, I mean, it's, there's only so much you can hide here, right? Like if there's nothing <laughs> to a project, we're going to find out pretty soon that there's nothing to a project. So it's also about like, you know, being, being selective with people that you work with um, because the, the amount of time that goes into, and, I, and this goes for, for individual artists, it goes for people working with companies, it goes for all of it. The amount of time that Web3 requires, and I don't talk about just sitting in front of the screen, I'm talking about like the amount of time that your brain needs to tick over while you're drinking your coffee or while you're on the way to have a shower. It really is so all-encompassing that if you're going to be spending that on something that you're not passionate about, you're going to probably end up being very miserable. <laughs> like you need to be, be like you have to be. <laughs> That's exactly how I feel about it too. Like as soon as I found out, like, you know, this whole world existed, as soon as I picked the, the scab off and like kind of got into it a little bit, like I went down the rabbit hole, right? Like it just took over everything, you know, my whole, every i'm walking around that's all i'm thinking about all day all night i'm going to sleep at night dreaming about it waking up thinking about it yeah i get that and and you're right if you can't find the thing that that, that really inspires you here you're you're right it's probably likely to either drive you crazy or just push you completely out yeah i've and i've learned that i think it's about it's all about a bit of balance and you know you you really need to go like what are my goals within the space what do i want to achieve and how can I do that in a realistic manner? So it's like, it's so overwhelming. And I remember when I first jumped into the whole NFT space, you're meeting so many epic people and, and you know, it's very exciting and there's so many genuinely rad stuff going on. And then you bite off way too many things and you realize that 
you know, with a space that moves as fast as this space does and with a gigantic pressure from the community in order to always see innovation and see new things, there's tremendous pressure on teams that are building. And if you're going to get involved and bite off too many chunks, you're going to realize that each one of those chunks are actually a massive mountain and it becomes extremely <laughs> overwhelming. So I think it's it's all about realizing that starting small and starting slow and, and making sure you can manage yourself so that you don't burn out in the space is also something to to just be really mindful of. That's great advice for anybody listening that's thinking about starting something here. Growing something organically is, seems to always be the best way to do it. So I, I caught that you you said your business was all women was all women. You're you're a complete women owned um, business. Was that intentional? No, it wasn't intentional at all. It just kind of it just happened. I my first um, staff member that I hired, Demi Saris, she is just amazing. She's my right-hand woman. She's really rad. She's on um, Twitter too. She's big in, in NFT Twitter as well. Um, and she's just, you know, an absolutely incredible human being um, and so easy to work with. And then Olive, who I also work with as well, we found, and it just organically happened that we just all gelled. You know, it's rare when you sit in a meeting or an interview with another person who you've never spoken to before, but you feel like you've known them forever. And I feel like I just got really lucky with both Demi and Olive that we managed to just gel and, and work together like that. And, you know, Demi has been with me nearly since the start. So she's been running studio with me for many, many years. Um, well, I mean, and yeah, it's just, uh, I mean, we work with with men. <laughs> There's lots of men in our expert partner <laughs> list. But for the most part, the internal core team um, is a powerhouse of, of women, which is really cool. That's super cool. And it may be serendipitous because, you know, the space as a whole, like this Web3 space seems to be mostly men. But the thing that amazes me the most about this community and, you know, my experience so far has been that everybody here seems to be really welcoming and like encouraging, like, let's get in more women, let's get in more minorities, let's get in more people of, uh, you know, different socioeconomic, racial, sexual identity backgrounds, like let's bring people in. It's a very like welcoming community. Um, even though there's not as many women in this space as there are men, it seems like women have a pretty big role here already. I would tend to agree as well. And I think, you know, it's, it's, it's been really refreshing watching the space over the year um, or the, the last year and a half that I've been involved and have been able to watch the space. Um, it's been really interesting to see the shift happen and to see how vocal people are and, and, you know, how the community has each other's backs. I think that's been really refreshing, especially within the photography community, which is mostly where I'm active. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I can't generalize for the nooks and crannies of, of the NFT and crypto world that I'm not directly sort of on a day-to-day -day basis involved with, but as far as the photography community goes, um, it's really been just eye-opening to see how supportive and inclusive everyone has been um, and, you know, how, how open to discussion they are, which is also really, really interesting for me to see, because if you can have an open discussion about something, whether it is behind the scenes or, or in front of others and leave and come to, you know, an, an agreement where everybody doesn't necessarily need to agree to get along, but to be able to have a discussion about things is that to me is, is really a step in the right direction. Um, and just to have a community that just really has each other's backs. I mean, I've never met a group of people where I can just go and vent and talk and ask questions about almost anything pertaining to life <laughs> or art. And, and there's just this little pocket of people who always just, you know, is there for you, which is, it's wonderful. It is. It is. I, I have had exactly that same experience. I just find the people here are so amazing. Like, for example, when I met you in New York, I just felt like, we were just like instantly friends, you know, and I, I mean, where else do you go or what other, you know, communities do you go to and you find people like that? I just haven't had that experience in my life. I'm 50 years old and here it's just a little <laughs> bit different. <laughs> I just love it. And I think, you know, we've, we've all been, you know, on spaces in each other's minds for the last year and a half or two years. Um, sure. some even if not more 
And it's just really cool to see that, you know, who we are within our Twitter personas, when we do eventually meet each other, we're like, damn, you, you're kind of like I thought you were going to be, but I don't know what to expect, but I'm pleasantly surprised. It's, it's always a lot of fun. Exactly. I want to ask you a little bit about your art background. So what was the first thing that you remember creating that you can call art? Oof. So <laughs> that's a really, really good question. I, re- I mean, I've been going to art class with my mom, obviously having her art background and in primary school and, and preschool, that was one of my favorite things. But I remember that I made this, this sculpt piece of clay and I don't know what it was. It was, I need to take a photo. I'll actually send it to you when I go to my mom's next. Cause I think she still has this thing. It's like a bowl in primary colors. It's clay. And then it has almost like a bird's neck and weird little cartoony feet. It could be a damn NFT project <laughs> if you ask me. <laughs> I could probably just render it and, and like change the colors. But it was a creepy little looking thing. But that was the first sort of piece that I that I remember I was quite proud of. I don't know if your parents smoked or not, but I think I was I was joking with my uh, fiance the other day about the first art I created. I think it might have been an ashtray <laughs> for my mom. And dad. <laughs> Ingenious. <laughs> Listen, you 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 didn't know it, but you were already starting to pay them back. <laughs> and that was actually a thing when I was a kid. Like everybody made ashtrays for their yeah. parents, yeah. but every, everyone smoked. You, know. <laughs> you got to love it. <laughs> do you have a traditional art? Ba- so you're, you're, it sounds to me like you do have a traditional art background and it, and it seems to be centered primarily in photography. Do, am I right there? I assume yeah. So when, when I was growing up, obviously with my mom, like I mentioned, I was always around, you know, paints and oils and pastels and Conte, everything that you could possibly create art with. Um, and I always went to art classes and, you know, throughout my primary and high school career, um, high school, a lot more. So I was very, very dedicated to traditional oil painting. Um, and even, you know, throughout studying at varsity, I would still paint. Um, not as much. And then I veered into more of sort of your sketching background. This was very pre-digital art. I mean, we could get Wacoms and stuff like that, but it was well without or outside of my price range, at least. It was not something within the realm of being realistic <laughs> for me as a student at all. Um, sure. So for, you know, a vast majority of the work was still very much pen and paper and canvas. Um, and then studying graphic design, we slowly transitioned onto a computer using design software and so on. Um, and I always had a camera. This is the thing. Like I was always taking photos throughout, you know, whether I was painting in that stage or what, whether I was doing graphic design at that stage, the, the camera was always present in the back of my mind. Like it was always, you know, taking photos of moments and people around me and documenting holidays and things that I was doing, it was always there. Um, And I actually started shooting fashion during college. So fashion photography is where I, I really started focusing on my technical photography skill, but that was all self-taught um, through the years. Did you ever have like a gal? Have you ever done anything in a gallery? Have you ever had a gallery show or sold art in galleries? Yeah, so I had a show um, down in the gallery in Loop Street in Cape Town, which was really cool. It was myself and another photographer that did a group show together. Um, the show was t- titled a, "A State of Otherness," um, and it was all a series of street photography taken throughout South Africa, Hong Kong, and New York. Um, which was really cool. I had a a good friend of mine, Alex Mayer, who's an incredible composer, um, do some music to accompany the the gallery show, the opening. Um, Uh So I let him sit with the pieces for a while, um, a couple of weeks before the opening, so that he actually sat and composed incredible um, piano pieces to accompany um, the evening, which was really special. and I had another gallery show during the pandemic with um, the Budnut Gallery down in Cape Town. Um, oh, and wow. that was titled Hopes and Dreams, which was really cool to be a part of, um, you know, especially as an artist going through a very uncertain time during COVID. Sure. 
Um, It was really, really cool to see galleries still push the norm and try to do, you know, shows accompanied by digital shows, which was really great um, and quite refreshing, which was one of the latest ones. And then there was a whole bunch of of shows during NFT NYC um, that I was really fortunate to display my work at, but that was obviously came much later. <laughs> that was not free. <laughs> web sure. What was what was the first? So what was the first thing that got you into let's quote let's call it NFT art or digital art? What was that? Was that something that happened during COVID or how did that? How yeah, did you get it happened. It it started right at the beginning um, of COVID, and it was actually Dave Krugman talking about a collab that he was doing with Nick Zulo. And um, I mean, Zulo is one of my favorite illustrators. I've been following him and Mad Dog Jones for many, many years on on Instagram already. Like they just blow my mind every day. And I started seeing them all hustle about this like NFT crypto thing. And I've been in crypto since, you know, I think about 2017. My dates might be messed up, but for a lot, for quite a while. But never really okay. ventured, you know, I, I bought ETH and, and Bitcoin and that was that. I never really did anything else with it and I never really ventured into NFTs. Um, I briefly heard about CryptoKitties and kind of brisked it over and then the big sure. bear market had nothing else happened. So um, I was relatively new to to all of this. Um, well, I love Dev Krugman and Zillow. I have uh, arts, but I have... The NFTs by both of them, and I'm actually a big fan of both of them. Hope to get them. I'm both so jealous that you point. have those pieces. <laughs> <laughs> so that yeah, you could you could literally say that they ended up inspiring me. I mean, this was the the year of Clubhouse, right? So I jumped into sure. the Clubhouse space, and I heard them all speak about this. And and for me, more so than anything, it was the technology and what could be done with that, like the potential of a new way of thinking about art, a new way of how we could potentially interact with art, what that token could mean or unlock, you know, I'm, that just got my brain thinking. And I just thought, you know what, this is something that I have to be involved with. Um, so I went down the rabbit hole. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And then everything changed. (laughs) And everything changed. (laughs) I think that's what happens. Yeah. Tell me what the first, what is the first thing that you minted as an NFT and who owns that now? So the first thing I ever minted was actually a digital painting of one of the photographs that I took while I was in Kyoto just before the lockdown hit in 2019. Um, And during the pandemic, we, I was literally, my partner and I, we were confined in like a 60 square meter apartment We couldn't leave the house. You know, it was so restricted that I couldn't pick up my camera. I couldn't go walk around the streets. Like I, it just wasn't an option. And I decided, you know what, I'm, I I can't paint traditionally because I'm in a 60 square meter apartment and I'll probably kill both Cole and myself with turpentine (laughs) poisoning (laughs) and horrible fumes if I had to even attempt it. So I decided to just sort of dive into the, into the world of digital painting. Um, so, you know, my people are always a bit, I think, surprised that my first mint that I ever did had actually was not photography. It was a digital painting of one of my pieces. And that's now, um, owned by Frozen, who's been, you know, I, I was no one. I hopped into the space. I mm-hmm. think I joined Twitter and, well, I was on Twitter for a long time, but officially like jumped into N- NFT Twitter and, you know, followed a couple of people I was super gung-ho, just went in there and minted a piece and put a price tag on it and hoped that it would get picked up and it got picked up. So, you know, for it, for me, it was really incredible because this person who had no idea who I was, had never spoken a single word to me, just paid, you know, for me in Rand value, an astronomical amount of money for a piece without even blinking. And that someone could do that because they love something or they really want to collect something was just so meaningful and and wonderful. And to this day, Frozen is still, you know, one of my biggest collectors. He's um, continued to collect from my work over the year. Um, And it's just been, it's been really amazing, you know, to, to build a relationship with someone 
um, and to have been able to foster a relationship with that person who collected your first piece was it's really meaningful. Um, and I'm, yeah. I'm actually really glad that you brought that up. I, I was that's one of my questions that I wanted to ask is what is your relationship with your collectors and how do you maintain those relationships? Like who who is it that's buying your art? It's interesting, right? Because it's it's I'm really shit at marketing my own stuff. I'm a, <laughs> I will do spaces for other people and I will promote other people's work and I find it really difficult to do that for myself. So initially, you know, my I think my biggest fans and and supporters came from within the photography community. You know, having having my friends put me in touch with people or have people, friends from the community help share my work and get in front of other collectors' eyes were were really important to to the sellout and and, and to getting my work seen by a lot of people. Um, and I think that's, you know, I give credit where credit is due, you know, like it's not just me posting my work and there we go, off it goes. A lot of the time behind the scenes, there's people going out on limbs for you or saying like, you know, here's this guy, there's no guarantee, or here's this woman, there's no guarantee, but I think you guys would really get along. Um, and just, you know, opening up and starting to have a conversation and not going into conversations with the idea to sell. I think that's that's the biggest thing. Like you, a collector has so much more value than the money that he is prepared to spend on your work. It is within conversations and getting to know someone and and really like getting to understand what is value to them and you know how do they go about their buying processes or you know the thing is when people buy art or the kind of collectors that I would ideally want to buy my pieces is collectors who connect with that specific piece, whether it's a painting or a photograph. It need, it's personal. It's either going to happen or it's not going to happen. It's not something that you can force or kind of like guilt someone into buying. So when I start talking to collectors, I literally, I park all of that aside. If we get along and we gel and they see eye to eye and they really like my work, then it'll be great if they pick that up. But that's not the purpose of, of my conversation with them. And I think that's that's something that's really important and it's and it's sometimes difficult. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, I didn't know how to start that conversation. And then I realized, you know what, we're all just human beings. We're all just people. Talk to them the way you would talk to anyone else. Have a genuine conversation. And if something comes from that, then that's fantastic. If it doesn't, you've got a friendship and that's fantastic. That's incredible. It made me think of a question. Do, is that something that you're considering when you're thinking about like what you're creating? Are you like, do you, do you think about like the collectors as you're be inspiring yourself to create new things? It's interesting. I think when sometimes I will, when I shoot something and I look down at my camera and I think, oh damn, that's a shot that I think would really complement a piece that someone else already has then maybe I, I've never done it where I've sent anything to them, but it is in my mind. Like I'll look down right, and go, right. damn, so-and-so will probably love the shot. Um, and you're connected maybe, the dots in you're connecting the dots yeah. in your own head. But, you know. <laughs> but maybe if I was a better marketer, I would then go as far as to send it to them. But but we'll see. Um, so not really, but you know, the, the one thing that really does inspire me is when I have conversations with my collectors and, you know, I'll, if I've got a body of work and I share some pieces with them, um, there's a couple that I speak to. And I think this is also really important, like a whole bunch of my collectors I'll speak to on like a weekly or monthly basis. And when we do talk, it'll be, you know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes of genuine conversation and checking in on each other and so on. So none of this is like cold and off the bat. Um, it's based on a foundation of a relationship that's been, you know, going for a while. But often when I would share some photos with them to get a sense of a feedback, um, conversation will erupt that really sparks different ideas. And whether that is with a collector or within other photographers within the community that, that we sort of share work and process stuff with each other, you know, it's that sharing parameter, whether it's with a collector or an artist or, you know, someone within a different discipline, it's always really important to just get someone else's take on a thing and to have a conversation around the craft or just a conversation in general. I think that that very often changes the way that we perceive things and 
by default would then change the way that we would want to create something. And it also and it also gives you an opportunity to sharpen your skill and make you a better artist uh, ultimately. Yeah, and it's it's you know the most fascinating thing for me is sometimes I will share a photo that I think is an absolute banger, like the one I'm like that one, that one they're gonna love this one, and then they come back and it's like the one I like the least. So it just shows <laughs> me that like <laughs> you must you whenever you try and think ahead, just don't create for you and create what makes you happy and put that work out there. And people, like I said, are going to connect with it or they're not, but the right person is going to come along. I think the worst thing that we can do as artists is start creating because we know that collectors are collecting a certain thing. You know, mm-hmm. being an artist is about expressing who you are. It's about, you know, confronting things that, that you might not understand or know how to confront. So you confront it on a canvas or you process it through your lens or Maybe it's it's part that gives you tremendous joy. You know, if, if I look at the amount of work that goes into some of these more composed pieces, there's so much thinking, there's so much love that goes into that. You need to do that for you. And the moment that you stop doing it for you and you do it for other people, you're, it's, it's a bit more soul-destroying and art should never be soul-destroying. And it takes the genuineness out of it, the genuineness that we talked about, which I think collectors can feel, right? Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. I remember when you you and I were talking about uh, a collection you were releasing and um, you sent me some available uh, pieces that were that were for sale and I looked at them uh, and I was thinking about buying one. I just wanted, I wanted all of them. <laughs> because I could, feel, I think I wrote you back. I like, I wish they could get all of them. <laughs> I could afford them all, but I would like them all. <laughs> but I, I, I look at it and it makes me feel a certain way, you know? I mean, it's, and I, I think that's the, that's the, the thing that you're trying for when you're, when you're creating this art, you know? Do you do you use social media at all besides Twitter? How do you how do you connect with people like um, to get the word out like that you exist and that you're out here and you have art you know that's available to be collected and bought? Yeah, Instagram was huge for me before I kind of migrated over to Twitter, and I'm still pretty active on Instagram, though not as much as I used to be. Um, mm. But that was really sort of my hub for for many years where Twitter was really just sort of like where I would vent on tweets. It was never used for, for anything like it is now. Um, but, you know, Instagram being Instagram many years ago, I still need to give it a lot of credit, you know, all the connections that I've made. Um, my incredible friends in New York, you know, Paula, um, Billy, uh, you know, it's, it's just I would never have met them if it wasn't for Instagram. You know, all the years of following and going through photos and even Omar, all of those people, Jeremy, none of that would have happened if I didn't message them on Instagram and be like, hey, I'm coming over to New York. Can we go for a photo walk? (laughs) Which is legitimately (laughs) what I did and um, just met Mike and and that whole crew. And it was wonderful. So Instagram might have gotten a little bit dismal toward the end, but it, it really was such an inspiring movement for me personally. And that was purely just the joy. Like I never monetized my Instagram. That was purely just my little space where Mm -hmm. I would post the work that I felt passionate about and I would share my street shots and, and, you know, put the work out there and then fast forward to web three. And I realized, Oh, wow. Okay. I can still put the work out there, but I can start selling the work that I'm putting out there, which is really, it was really mind bending. Do you have a team who helps you? Do you do you work with anybody when you're like producing stuff and minting your art on chain and doing all of that? Do you have some like a team that you work with? So with all my previous drops that I've done, no, that was that was just me. And again, like even when I dropped from the other side, which was my first collection on OpenSea, I kind of just did that gung ho again. I, I have a tendency of just doing that. Um and but I learned from that. It was still a really good success and I'm, and I'm very happy for that. Um, the collection has done really, really well. Um, and I'm, I'm happy with where it is, but for my new collection called hidden stories, side of hand, um, I'm working with the team at Guppy NFT who just helped me put some of the moving parts together. 
um, and Transient Labs who are helping the team at Guppy and they dev complete uh, the stories contract for me, which is super exciting. So this is the first time that I've got a team supporting from the dev side, um, which is really, really great. And just having, you know, a support structure of incredible people within the NFT space to bounce ideas off of and, you know, to show work to if I have doubts about what to include in the collection. And it's been really amazing having that support. Um, I think, you know, with with a stories contract, which essentially allows collectors to add a story and cement that into the into the, the metadata of the NFT was quite a large um, undertaking in many aspects, you know, from how the actual contract will work to how the minting process will work to how is it optimized for gas when people want to add these stories and what sort of limitations do we have? And it was quite a a tremendous undertaking for, you know, one, sorry, excuse me, for one dev to do. Um, So we approached Transient Labs um, and I spoke to them about this project and, and what I had in mind and they were super excited to come on board um, and Ben and Marco and the team there are just phenomenal. Um, and I'm honestly just blessed that they got excited by this and, and wanted to be involved. So, yeah. Was this, a um, steep, was this a steep learning curve for you to kind of like onboard yourself to learn like, you know, what's a contract? How do you, you know, how do you, how does yeah. all of this work? Yeah. How did it you definitely educate was, yourself? You know, yeah, it, you know, more so than, I mean, I'm not a developer by any any which way, shape, or form. It's just not within my wheelhouse. But for right. me, I think the biggest learning curve was understanding that, you know, yes, you can go and get a Manifold Studio contract and, and, you know, you can do that and it is, you know, readily available for people. You don't have to go down this avenue that I went. Um, but, I, you know, having the functionality to be able to add a story was something that I've always felt was was lacking from how we viewed provenance in art traditionally. You know, we were so focused on who did it sell to and at what price. And other than that, we're not really all that interested. But, you know, with my mom taking me to every single secondhand store and gallery show and opening, I would usually be at the back, you know, going through the archive pieces or in the corner of the secondhand shop looking through all the antiques wondering what life did this thing live who owned it what stories does this object hold and from that fascination you know and and talking with the team at guppy we then said well what is actually stopping us from doing this as an as a you know a function on an nft because now that's all verifiable on chain right like exactly you can can know all of those answers yeah so i've always had this fascination if if i buy a piece and later on um, I sell you that piece, we're connected by it. And so is every future person who owns and collects that piece. And how wonderful would it be to be able to look through a journal entry of this photograph's life? And, you know, it can be anything. It can be a joke or a story or, a, you know, a chapter from someone's memoir, if that's what they want to put in there. It's just, you know, this this possibility to get a big or small glimpse into someone who treasured this item before you is really something that I wanted to explore. Um, and what I didn't understand at the time was, you know, the the actual sort of implications of all of these different things. And I've learned a lot, like I ideally wanted to mint from my own website. And I realized, you know, after many conversations, the most important thing is that my collectors connect with the pieces, meaning they would need to have the ability to reserve a very specific photograph or photographs. Doing that and minting from the website, you're going to be paying gas through the roof. It doesn't make sense doing it that way on the way our contract is structured. So definitely from a technical side, it's been one learning curve after the next. And I'm forever grateful, you know, to have a team who's able to mitigate that with me um, and really just baby explain these things as we go. But it's been it's been really, really cool to learn um, it, it's definitely not something that's cheap to do, but for me, the most important thing was, you know, yes, this is my living and I need to make some profit off of this, but I also want to push where technology within the blockchain can go and how we as artists can look at these things. And if someone else, you know, once this is done, the work is out there and it will make me extremely happy to see more people adopt the story contract. 
um, or reach out to Transient Labs and, and get their story contract. Um, however, which way I, I just really want this to be something that others can use because I find it to be such a thing that, that we've missed. And I'm not someone who wants to keep things to myself. So I just wanted to get this out there, be one of the first to do it in this way when it comes to photography and art in long form writing, not just like names or day changes, but actual, you know, being able to put in a significant amount of words. Um, and once it's there, I, it's my hope that each of these pieces will continue to collect stories throughout their journey and that it would inspire other artists to start thinking about ways that they can combine, you know, what you're able to do on the blockchain and how that can actually increase, um, not necessarily the monetary value, but the sentimental value of art as it goes through from, from one collector to the next. Oh, you're just blowing my mind right now and you're making me think of so many things. I, I think one of the things that just was popping through my head as you were saying all of that is that people that are new to the NFT space or this digital art space probably have no idea how much work and how complicated the back end of all of this is. Like what you're talking about is so complex. <laughs> There's so much work that goes into all of that. Can you talk a little bit about how hard or how much work is involved with that? It's, it's a lot. And I mean, I would love to do a separate, you know, even if we do a space maybe closer toward the launch and I can get Marco and Ben and Will to jump on and, and chat about the intricacies of the contract. Um, oh, yeah. And not necessarily, you know, the intricacies is one thing, but, you know, as with anything, when you start moving through it and you start actually implicating stuff, you realize, oh my goodness, this is, here is a problem. Or this is, a bigger problem that we had initially thought that it was going to be. And there was a lot of that. Um, a lot of it, I don't necessarily understand to the point where I can sit here and like in detail, explain everything to you. Absolutely. And I guess my point is, Michelle, it's like, you know, somebody might just think like, you know, you, you take, you go out with your camera, you take a picture, you, you know, you edit the picture, then you upload it into, you know, this mint site or whatever, and boom, you got a, you got an NFT for sale, but it's just so much more complicated than that. Like, oh, yeah. it's just, it's like, like, you know, there's, there's, there's way, way, way more involved to. Exactly. To and, create. you know, with, with everything <laughs> that I think if, whether it's putting a collection together or whether it's minting one-on-ones, you still need to really think it through. In terms of, you know, if if you look at one piece out of a collection, are you able to tell that that is from a certain collection? Like, is there a cohesive feel mm, or something mm. in there that ties it together? And is every single shot able to live up to that? I think that's that's really important. And it's it's tough to put that critical hat on because you've got to be extra brutal and critical over your work. Um, my first collection was 30 photographs. Hidden Stories is 50 photographs, and I have hundreds of these. I've been photographing hands for, I mean, there's some that date back to 2017, 2016. I think the earliest that's included in this collection was 2017 or 2018. But, I mean, that's it's years of photographing hands, years. but then you go, right, well, there's many, but there's many that I don't really feel make the cut or make sense. And that's where you need to be sort of, um, really diligent, but also, you know, with with Hidden Stories, as an example, I wanted to create something that could live and become more than just one thing. And that's why it's titled Hidden Stories. So everything that I mint under Hidden Stories will be with a stories contract. But then, you know, the first chapter is called Sight of Hand, but there will be many chapters that will come from here. What shape or form they take is not dictated. Um, it, it allows me room to grow and, and to think of other concepts. Um, Sight of Hand was really just born from, you know, being, this was my sort of post-pandemic collection. Um, and pre-pandemic, I was very focused on faces and eyes and emotions. And I would get very close to subjects and very much like, you know, focus on getting that raw, raw emotion. And COVID hit and we're all tucked behind masks and we're not getting very close to each other. And, but more so you struggle to see the whole face. You struggle to see the expression and we carry our emotions and our feelings and our demeanor in our whole body, not just in our eyes and in our faces. So I started looking at, you know, 
what does your posture tell about you? How does the way that that man sits, what is it making me feel? And I started looking back through my archives and, you know, again, just noticed so many times I'll photograph hands caught in sunlight, um, you know, coming out of a shadow or leaning on the side of a table, feet popping out of a corner, you know, small little hidden moments. And I've always just been fascinated. I, I have quite bad anxiety and, I, and I'm a forever picker. So I always say, like, you can tell how I am mentally by looking at my hands. And for me, I've always just, it's one of the first things I look at when I meet someone. I can't help but glance down at their hands to see if there's little traces left behind that we can't hide because we can't hide our hands. Um, and it's it's always been something of, um, I guess, a Cluedo of sorts is looking and photographing hands and coming up with stories and tales of where that's been and you know, what journey has this person gone on? Do they have hands that look like they work hard or do they have hands like a musician or are they a painter? I think, you know, there's so much that we do day to day with our hands that that sort of, that we can't hide from other people. And that's where, where Side of Hand really came from. Um, and this would be the first chapter. I would really, really hope down the line to launch some sort of coffee table book or something where we can print um, all the stories that have accumulated over a certain set of time in, in a volume of sorts. Um, but that's the beauty of this, right? Like like you said, it's not just deciding, oh, here's a photograph, I'm going to post it and mint it. Like, yes, mm -hmm. I could do that. But I really do sure. want to think about what is the bigger story? What is the bigger picture? Like, how does this fit into everything else that I'm doing? And then how could we, how could this potentially evolve um, as I evolve through the space? Um, and there's a lot of thinking that goes into a lot of this stuff. Um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely not as easy as just going, I'll do this one. <laughs> well, I think that's probably what gives you the heart of being a true artist. <laughs> and so being yeah. an artist, how do you, I want to ask you some questions, uh, before we finish, I really want to get into a couple of questions about like, how do you value your art? How do you, how do you evaluate what something's worth when you're listing it for sale? Do you think about now that we're in the digital art space, do you think about floor prices? How do you, how do you view that? Like, is that, is that something that's, that's hard or easy for you to do? Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, definitely. I think pricing is one of the most difficult things within the space, because I think there's, there's such huge discrepancy in, in what artists charge for their work. Um, you know, and for me personally, when I started, I started, um, my collection was 0 0.3, around about there, I believe. And that's really gone up since then. And I decided, you know, with, with my collection floor being where it's at, I don't. And also, you know, my super F floor, my foundation floor, there's so many different floors, right? And, and should we ever go lower or should we only ever go higher? There's all these different questions, and I honestly don't think that there's a right or a wrong. I think we need to look at individual pieces and go, how considered is this specific piece? Um, I, I personally save my grails, and those will go on to super rare, and I'll price those slightly higher. Um, that's not to say that they will just go up. I'll always be conscious of my flaw. I'm not going to go and, you know, take a photo within a collection on super rare where they've sold for X amount and then go post one for a third of the price. Um, that's not something that I will ever do out of respect for my collectors. But I, I also think that we need to be conscious within a growing market that we're not outpricing ourselves. You know, when it, when we go, okay, three ETH sale, four ETH sale, five ETH sale, and only up from there, there's such a huge portion of people who that doesn't remain accessible for. And maybe that's why we have different platforms. I mean, sure. many artists look at this in other ways. This is just how I look at it. And I separate my work. So my collections will always be priced at a more accessible entry point. Um, being collections, the value may or may not ever really reach crazy heights. I don't know. Again, this is all a brave new world. We've seen collections do extraordinarily well and uphold with one-on-one floor prices. Um, so it's, it, 
you know, when, when I, when it comes down to it and an artist or anyone asks me, how should I price this? I go, what does your gut say? If you had to sell this tomorrow and walk away, what is the number that will make you feel like you've got no regret for letting that piece go? And, and be, be considerate about that. Like how much time did that piece take you to, to make? And, and I'm not talking about clicking the shutter, right? I'm talking about how many years, did it take you to hone your craft in order to be able to see that moment? Or if you're an artist, if you're a painter, I'm not talking about the three weeks it took you to paint that painting. I'm talking about the seven years you've, you've taken to get to the point where you're able to create that piece and, you know, set yourself realistic expectations, but, but also don't undersell yourself. There seems to be a trend, especially with artists who I see selling things that are like in hard to reach price ranges, like artists that have things that are just extraordinarily expensive out there on super rare. So like you got an artist that's got pieces on super rare that have sold for 50 or a hundred ETH. The trend seems to be lately from my observation is that some of them are now starting to release like additions with like, you know, 40, 50, 60, you know, additions of one, of one thing that, that make those additions more accessible to people that aren't necessarily in the, you know, in the social status range where they can yeah. afford something that's 58th, right? It's a, it's a tall order. <laughs> it's a tall order, right? Like, like, like most of us can't afford something that's 58th, you know, just to hold in my digital wallet. Right. And so there's a, but, but I like their art and I want to be able to collect their art. Do you, how do you feel about doing editions or releasing editions like that? Is that something? I love it. Yeah, I, I dig it. It's, it really is something that gives you a chance to, to pick something up from an artist that you wouldn't necessarily be able to. Um, I picked up, uh, uh, one of Ruben's editions, which I was just so stoked about. Um, and you know, it's, it's something that I, that I really love. I've got some of Hans Kemp's editions. Um, and it's, it's a really nice way to support fellow artists, um, without breaking the bank and then be able to own something from them that you wouldn't necessarily be able to own. Um, and you know, I, I see that as a form of patronage too, especially, um, with, you know, lesser established artists. I, I really love supporting or love seeing other people support editions because it, it really is, you know, when when I buy art, I really don't buy art with the intent to flip it. I buy it because I love it and I and at that point I can afford it and I would really love to support that artist. And I think edition is a really beautiful way for us to see it as a patronage of saying like, this is a really beautiful photograph at a really damn good price and I'm able to add you to my collection. And by doing so, and by doing so with another hundred people or 50 people or 150 people, we're enabling you to then go off and create more incredible stuff for the coming months. And to me, that's, that's how I see additions. I came so close to getting a cat some art on that recent nifty gateway drop. I missed it by like a hundred, a <laughs> hundred bucks. <laughs> I've literally been, I've, I'm not allowed to buy a single thing until I've paid for the deployment of my contract because it's going to be such a steep tab. Um, The way that it works, I need to add every story. You know, I I need to cement my beginning story onto each one of the the NFTs. So I'm paying gas on gas on gas. So Mm. (laughs) it's going to be a steep bill. So I'm under strict personal instruction to not buy a single thing until that gas has been paid for. But I think that's worth worth saying to, to people that are listening, like, you know, people that are thinking about collecting or buying art, like it's expensive for you as an artist to deploy this contract. Like you're, you're, you're taking a huge risk and a huge gamble by investing money that you've earned as an artist and as, as you know, as an advertiser and all the things that you do to earn money. Uh, and you're risking that when you're deploying this contract and in the hopes that people will buy your art. It is. It definitely is. And I think, you know, it's, and that goes for anyone like, yeah, there's working with it, with teams, there's definitely an overhead because, you know, there's, there's a percentage cut that goes to, to these team members. They've been spending a lot of time working and thinking and building on this project. Um, and then obviously there's the deployment. So when you're looking at custom contracts, especially intricate custom contracts, there's a lot of, you know, fees associated with that. 
Um, but even an individual artist, you know, if you're looking at your price of, of minting on foundation and minting on super rare, if you're minting under or, or listing under a certain price, you're actually making a loss. Like it's, right. it's, you know, like you've, you really have to sort of work out and do your maths and then go back and look. And that's why I said, like, when it comes down to pricing, you, you really need to calculate all of those and then figure out like, what is your tax percentage and what do you then need to make from this photograph in order to make a profit, not break even or make a loss because you know, you're, you're, and this is difficult. You know, when I see people selling work for like 0.2, 0.1, my, I'm going literally after gas and after taxes, you're, you're almost left with nothing. And that to me, it's soul destroying because you're worth so much more than that. And I know it's difficult because saying that is comes very easy. You know, making sales is tough. I know how tough it is. It's really sure. not easy. And a lot of people prioritize, you know, building a collector base over making money, which I respect is incredibly admirable. Um, it's just my hope that that the low number doesn't become a norm um, and that people, you know, do, do end up spending a bit more, especially on established or not, I mean, on non-established artists. Um, because their cost <laughs> and, and entry barrier is significant. Um, you know, having a hundred bucks to spend on minting a piece on foundation with a hope that you sell if you're not a if you're not a big name, that's a huge risk. And sure. you know, big respect to all the artists that are busy doing that. Um, it is a huge risk, but you're here and you're showing up, and and that makes me very excited. Well, it's it's a big risk, and then you take into consideration that you're in the middle of a huge bear market, you know, and people yeah. are people are buy, people aren't buying what like they were. People are uh, a lot of people are on the sidelines, kind of waiting to see what will happen. Yeah, and with a merge coming up. Yeah, Do you have any thoughts about that? You want to talk about that at all? How do you how are you looking at the merge and? Yeah, I, I've i just been doing some light reading and watching from the sidelines. Um, I'm not panicking or making any drastic moves with anything on my side. Um, I'm too diamond-handed to panic and flip anything. So I'm just strapping in, getting my popcorn ready and going along for the ride. And I guess I hope that nothing burns because my project launches on the 25th of September. So that's post-merge. So I hope we still have a blockchain. I'm I'm a I am not a flipper at heart. I'm a holder. I'm a hodler. I cannot. I, I yeah. just have the hardest time selling anything, and so I'm the same as you. I'm just like holding all I my stuff joke. and just. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a holder. I'm a hoarder. I keep it all. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah i would never make a good trader because i don't i'm not good at the selling part i'm good at buying but i never yeah sell. I'm, I'm excellent at buying but it's i just get way too personally vested in the things that i buy mm. that it's it's just ridiculous uh i could i could totally identify with that do you do royalties do you do you have make royalties do. on secondary sales? How do you feel about that? There's been a lot of chitter chatter on NFT Twitter in recent days and weeks about royalties. I wonder what your thoughts are about that. I do take royalties, and and you know it's it's something that I feel extremely strongly about. Um, if we look back at traditional artists, you know we can okay we can use like your clichés like van gogh and so on as an example but i think you know to to bring it a bit more forward into the day to day oftentimes we will spend or artists will spend 20 30 40 years of their life working on collections working on commissions just getting by enough to get the second one done all the while their name is growing and their collectors are selling their work behind the scenes on auction making a fortune but the artist itself is not seeing that return they just need to work harder and hopefully they can sell their next collection for more. And, you know, that's the galleries keep taking their cuts and the artists don't, don't see that. And now come web three, we've got an opportunity to sell for a lower amount in order to get your collectors on board. But hopefully as that picks up and momentum builds, you've got some sort of a passive income coming in from your work. And if you do see tremendous success, like some of the amazing artists in the space has, when their pieces start selling for, you know, 100 ETH, 70 ETH, 200 ETH. Um, Fuo had an incredible bid the other day. I think it was like a couple hundred ETH. Um, it looked like three, and, 350 ETH. 
350. 350. It was, yeah, <laughs> I, I was scrolling through at night and I was lying in bed and I literally went, <gasps> and I realized, oh shit, Cole's sleeping. I should wake him up. But I was like fist pumping because how awesome to see. But it's, you know, a, a royalty on that means it's huge. It's, you know, an artist deserves that. Someone who has worked so hard um, as artists do, struggled for so long. Now in Web3, there's there's this rad thing where we get to make money along with the success of ourselves and our collectors making money. Um, it's such a small portion that I, I just don't see the purpose of the debate. I, I was a little bit like shook by it <laughs> because mm-hmm. you know, you, you, the, the person buying is paying the amount regardless, right? It's just the percentage cut. So it's, it right. was... Uh- a five percent, a five percent commission or five percent royalty on a three hundred and fifty sale is like thirty thousand dollars. You know, you yeah, to, like back, that's, back, that's to the, huge. back to the artist. Yeah, it's a lot of money. <laughs> it's, 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 yeah, and and it, and it, and it is and it, and it is game changing for art and artists in the future. I mean, it's. I think this is. Um, you know, my interpretation of it all is that it's that it's going to change the art world just entirely. Yeah. Definitely, because I mean, how many times do we say starving artist? How many times have I said it at the beginning of the interview when I was like, yeah, I wanted to go study art, but I didn't want to be a starving artist. This is how we've been, you know, this is how art has been perceived. You are not going to become wealthy within your lifetime as an artist. You might become extremely famous once you've passed on and someone rediscovers you and your family might reap the benefits. But is that really how we should look at things? No, it isn't. It really, really isn't. You know, we we should be able to reap our rewards and have a great life and be able to afford our bills and create without this constant stress of finances like an artist used to back in the day. I think, you know, the whole starving artist is such an annoying thing that that I that is being broken and the mold is being broken and and this allows us to actually be able to make money on an ongoing basis as our work increases in in success and to even want to take such a small percentage away from and you know just to interrupt myself not every artist is selling for 350 right that's extremely rare there's maybe like a handful of artists reaching those numbers but for the most part we're talking about a royalty on a two ETH sale we're talking about a royalty on a 0.8 sale or three or five ETH we're not talking hundreds of thousands of rounds, but those small little, you know, numbers do make a huge difference for the day to day of an artist needing to pay bills and pay rent and get all of that stuff done. So, you know, it's absolutely that that is even <laughs> argued really just boggles my mind. <laughs> <laughs> Whether it's 30,000, 3,000 or 300 or 30, you know, whatever it is. I mean, anything that's, that's flowing back to the artist is, is, um, you know, I'm sure is appreciated and, and needed. I kind of have a prediction that, you know, in the future, some of these artists are going to become like the superstar celebrities of the future. <laughs> you know, I just have a feeling like, <laughs> When this NFT, this whole NFT thing gets mainstream, some of these artists that we see that are selling for, you know, hundreds of ETH right now have the potential to become like, like super celebrities, you know, what do you, do you think? I think some of them almost are already. If you think about it, if you think about like the drifts and the cats of the world and the fewers and. Well, they are, they are, they are to us very, very small. They are to us at least. (laughs) (laughs) we're we're like the geek crew in the corner but i think the the geek crew is growing to hundreds of thousands of people exactly what happens when this becomes mainstream as it is happening you know right before our eyes you know like these people are going to become incredibly popular and probably insanely wealthy Definitely. I think, you know, for, for me, what interests me is to see, you know, how the how the early um, artists in the space that made it really big and really successful, I think for me, the interesting thing would be to see how they progress over the next year or two and what initiatives and incentives they are doing and, and continue to do throughout the years in order to uplift those that come after them. Um, and, you know, the, it's yes, it's a handful of people, but it's a handful of people with a lot of power. 
Um, and, you know, and I'm, I'm not talking necessarily about just the monetary value, but, you know, the, the influence value as well in terms of, you know, here's a handful of individuals who've become extremely successful in the NFT and crypto space that have an, a rare opportunity in order to make actual change happen. Um, whether that is through incentivized programs or mentorships or, um, you know, whatever it could be, that's, that's really where I'm sort of looking toward and, and I'm, and I'm genuinely excited to see how these individuals end up giving back. And, and so many of them do. Um, and it's just been, you know, it's, it's, that's something that I really look forward to seeing what happens because, you know, I feel like a lot of them are very genuine. They've had their own struggles, they've had their own things. So it's, I'm excited to see what they do with this. Yeah, these people's hearts all seem to be very much in the right place from from my perspective, uh, watching what's happening right now. Uh, you know, I just see like like Drift, you know, he went and uh, he did that huge addition release uh, to give all that money back to, to like the Bond project from the jail that he was, you know, that what he he's doing with the in. Bond project yeah. is just amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's actually, you know, I mean, it's incredible to watch artists, um, you know, wield their influence and their uh, their ability to generate, you know, money uh, and then to turn it around and to just help, you know, help people. I mean, it's really cool. It's super cool. Michelle, we're getting to the top of the hour and I just want to tell you, like, I've just enjoyed talking to you so much. Is there anything that you're working on right now that you want to plug? Is there anything you'd like to tell us about that that's coming up, any drops you have happening? Um, is there anything you want to say about yourself that, um, that we, that I didn't ask you? I think we mostly covered it all. I think the, the only big drop up and coming is hidden stories, which will launch on the 25th of September. Um, all the details are on my, on my Twitter profile and you can register for, for the reserve list. Um, so that's all there. Uh, other than that, I'm just, you know, doing my thing on the side, um, working with some really cool other people in the space on their projects and helping them push their things over the line. So I'm, I'm busy in the background, but nothing, nothing from me until the 25th of September. Well, I appreciate you taking uh, uh, this time out of your busy schedule to talk to me. Um, it means a lot to me that you uh, have agreed to be one of my early guests on this podcast. As as I said earlier, I consider you to be a friend. I, I'm so happy we met in New York, and I can't wait for your drop. Uh, and I can't wait to see what happens for you in the future. Oh, thank you, Chris. This was such a privilege and it was so great chatting. It's like you said, it's sometimes you meet people and you're just instant friends. So it felt yeah. like we were in the cafe hanging out again in New York, which I hope we get to, to do again soon. I love it. And Emma says to tell you hello. <laughs> <laughs> we'll make a plan. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> thank you, Michelle. Subscribe to The Ledge wherever you get your podcasts. And follow me on Twitter at Harper underscore underscore Chris, or you can follow me on Instagram at ChrisHarper.eth. As we're standing here on the ledge of the Web3 universe and diving into it with digital artists, thank you guys, and I'll see you guys out on the ledge. Mm -hmm.